Well, this morning, if you would, we are going to continue in our series in the book of Ephesians. We're working through the book of Ephesians section by section. Our text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 19 through 22. And if you would, I would just like you to hold your place there. Ephesians 2 verses 19 through 22. Let me mention, this is very important. I know that this week many of you will be gathering with family and celebrating the 4th of July and the independence of our country. Would you do me a favor? Don't forget that our youth are on a missions trip this week. And they, 27 approximately youth and leaders ministering in Pittsburgh where there are multiple national people groups that have settled there from other countries that they will be ministering to. So please don't forget to pray for them this week. A very important time in the lives of those young men and young women. Um, These trips have the potential to be life-changing, and so I would really ask you to be praying for them. Well, As we work through the book of Ephesians, we come to the end of chapter 2 this morning, and as I have shared with you a number of times, chapter 2 has two major paragraphs, verses 1 through 10 and then verses 11 through 22. In that second paragraph, we have been, or we are in our third sermon just on that second paragraph. First, we looked at verses 11 through 13. Then we looked at verses 14 through 18. This morning, verses 19 through 22. And it is a very important section on the marvelous unity of the body of Christ. Appreciated Jim's prayer this morning for our unity as the church because that's what this section, whole section is about We don't often hear sermons on this subject, but we probably should much more. It is clearly taught in the Word of God. And I realize on a weekend like this that we have many people visiting with us. So let me just briefly review with you. And so our first point this morning is Gentiles, Jews, and the glorious church. In verses 11 through 13, Paul tells the church at Ephesus to remember who they were before they came to Christ. The church at Ephesus is made up not totally but predominantly with Gentiles. And he says, I want you to remember, I don't want you to ever forget who you were before you came to Christ. And he says, I want you to remember that you were separated from Christ that you were without hope and you were without God in the world. You were far away from God's dealings with the people of Israel, with the Jewish people. And he said, you, or in essence, he's saying you were like ships floating in the dark with no destination, no eternal hope whatsoever. But then we come to that glorious verse Verse 13, where it says, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought into the very intimate presence of God the Father through the sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ and his victorious resurrection. You have placed your trust in the atoning work of Christ upon the cross and now you have been brought near to God. In verses 14 through 18, we learned that the amazing beauty 
of the church, the true biblical church, is that it brings enemies together in Christ. It brings them into the family of God. And most specifically here it is talking about Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, as I talked about a lot last week, especially at this time in history, had a long history of animosity toward one another. They hated one another. They despised one another. And in some cases, they persecuted one another and committed acts of violence toward one another. But now in the church, through Jesus Christ, they are brought together to be one new person in Christ. This was radical. This was astounding back in the first century. And in verse 14, it says, He himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down in his flesh, in his sacrificial death, the dividing wall of hostility. So God, in Christ, created one new man and brought, brought us not only peace with God, but peace with one another. And I want you to remember that as a church body. That God brought us not only peace with himself, but peace with each other. And the glorious beauty of the church all over the world, people groups coming to know Christ, is that people who were once enemies of one another, who hated one another, who had nothing to do with one another, are now together when they believe in Christ in the church. And Christ accomplished all of this at the cross, killing the hostility, Paul says. And so Jesus came, and he came and he preached. As it says in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, referring to the Jews. He proclaimed peace to you, the peace of salvation through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ himself. And the word preached there, as I mentioned last week, is where we get our English words, evangelism and evangelistic or, um, yeah, evangelism, evangelist and evangelical all come from that word preached. It means to preach the good news. It means to preach the good news of salvation in Christ. So literally it is saying that Christ came and gospeled those who were far away. And he came and he gospeled those who were nearby. He came and told them the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ and made them into one new man. And we looked at two other passages last week, Ephesians 3, 6, which we will look at in a few weeks in our study, where it says the mystery, the unfolding mystery in Christ is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And as I said last week, this was unbelievable. It was almost like, Paul, I I can't believe you're saying this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. Again, this was astounding, unbelievable at this particular time. We are part of the same bodies, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. How? How? It says. Notice those last three words carefully. Through the gospel. Through the gospel. And then Romans chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, for there is no difference. Again, it's like, Almost like, say it isn't so, Paul. How can it be? There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. 
The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And many of us have memorized Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a great verse, but the context is so important here. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Everyone. And it means this. It has such a wider application. Every person from every people group, every skin color, every language, every culture who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and they will be become part of this one new man in Christ. Well, that brings us to verses 19 through 22 this morning. Let me read that for you. And those first two words are so crucial. So then, based on everything I've just said, Paul is saying, so then, based on all of this, you Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's why I had Pastor Mike have us sing Cornerstone right before the message because this is about the cornerstone. Our second point this morning is three metaphors and an amazing truth. That's what this little text is about. There are three metaphors. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. You are a holy temple and there is an amazing truth. You are the dwelling place of God. You are. The church is now the dwelling of God. Well, the first metaphor. As Christians, we are fellow citizens with the saints of God. So then, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Folks, if you know Christ as your Savior, you are part of the kingdom of God. In its broad definition, we are part of the kingdom of God. We are fellow citizens with the saints. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This has passed present and future implications. I want you to know this morning that you are fellow citizens with the saints from the past. All those who came to know Christ in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all those who have come to know Christ and have served him throughout church history, those great men and women of God, you are fellow citizens with them. It has present implications. We stand together with those who are believers from all different countries, from all different areas of the world, who make up the church. Together, we are fellow citizens with the saints. It has future implications in that there are many yet, many yet who, are come, who will come to know Christ and they will come and be part of that kingdom and they will be fellow citizens with us. Second metaphor 
as Christians, we are members of the household of God. At the end of verse 19 and in verse 20, it says, Members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Oh, with all who know Christ as Savior, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the family of God. We have brothers and sisters who look different than us, who have different skin color, who speak a different language, who are from very different cultures, who are in different parts of the world. But we are all members of the household of God. And this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Those men chosen by God to build the New Testament church at its very foundation during that period of time before the New Testament was completed or what we would call the New Testament canon. The canon refers to the completed Old Testament and completed New Testament. And there were apostles, of course, the 12 apostles plus Paul. And then there were prophets. Now, the prophets here used in this text does not refer to the Old Testament prophets, but the New Testament prophets, those men who proclaimed truth in the establishment of the church in its earliest years. People like Philip the evangelist, people like Stephen who was stoned to death for his faith, people like Barnabas and Silas who were not the apostles but were, who were key teachers in the development of the church, in the establishment of the church. And the church was established as a word-based, Bible-based church. It was established in the teaching of God's word his words to us. It is a Bible-centered, God-ordained, and God-created household. And Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. What a beautiful thought. You may know from hearing other sermons or from your own reading that in the ancient world, the cornerstone was the absolutely most important stone in any building where two walls would come together there would be a cornerstone every other part of the building every wall every layer every joint had to be perfectly in line with the cornerstone the cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ himself he is the living word of God he is our savior he is the one we look to believe in, rely on every second of every minute of every day. He is truly our cornerstone. And oh, the prophets, the prophets looked forward to the coming day when the cornerstone was cut, would come. One example, Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Therefore the Lord God said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. As Isaiah looked forward into the future, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, look. He quotes the Lord in saying, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. Third metaphor 
as Christians, we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 21 says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Folks, I want you to know this morning that we have been supernaturally joined together in Christ with all of the saints around the world. And really, from the past and in the future, we have been supernaturally joined together with them in the Holy Spirit, in the Lord, and we grow together in Christ. We think most keenly of those of us who are alive now, all our brothers and sisters around the world, we are joined together with them, and we are the temple of the Lord, which means that we exist. The very reason this church exists, the reason every Bible-believing, every Bible-teaching church exists is for the joyful expression of our praise and worship to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it was the tabernacle in the wilderness or Solomon's temple or Herod's temple, what did the temple exist for? Worship. That is where they would make pilgrimages to the temple in Jerusalem to worship, to worship the living God. And now it is taking place within the church. We are the temple and we worship God in so many ways. We proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ. We teach, we preach, we disciple, we fellowship together, we bear one another's burdens and we take the gospel message to the farthest reaches of the world. Oh, we are. Folks, we are, together with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, we are the temple of the Lord. Well, now a glorious truth. A glorious truth. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God. In verse 22, it says, In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Oh, there is some good theology in this one verse. We are being built up, which has a twofold thought. We are growing in Christ. And also the church itself is being built all over the world. People are being added to the church all the time. And we are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When you come to know Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, applying the finished work of Christ upon the cross to your life. And you become part of the temple of God. What a thought. Now, this is interesting. Stay with me here. The thought here is slightly different than you individually being the temple of God. In verses like 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, But your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who lives in you, who was given by God. You are not your own. Now, that's interconnected to this, but this is slightly different. This is, this is not just talking about you as an individual, your body being the temple of God. This rather is talking about us collectively being the temple of God. The church. The church is the temple of God, the place where God dwells. I just want you to think about that with me. Marvel at it. Be astounded by it this morning. 
God is no longer dwelling in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in a temple in Jerusalem. Do you know where he's dwelling today? In his church. In his church. We, together, are the dwelling place of God. I find it incredible sometimes that you will meet Christians who don't go to church anywhere. How can a Christian not be a part of the church? Do you want to know what the one true church is? The one true church is every single person who has trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior around the world. But that universal one true church expresses itself clearly and strongly in the New Testament through individual local churches. The church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, specific demographic locations, the churches in Galatia, the churches in the area of Rome. The one true universal church always expresses itself in local bodies of believers who represent that one true universal church. That church always has elders. It always has deacons. It always carries out the ordinances of the church in baptism and the Lord's Supper. It carries out church discipline. It bears one another's burdens. It ministers to the widows. It ministers to the orphans. All those one another verses that we are to obey in the New Testament are carried out in the context of the local church. How can we say we're a Christian and not be a part of a local church? Folks, we, we are the dwelling place of God. Today, in the New Testament era. And I want you to know before we go to communion this morning that God continues to build his church. He is on the move all over the world, planting churches, establishing churches. And the building of the one true church will not be finished until the consummation of the end times. And then at that time, Christ will set up his kingdom and we will rule and reign with him. But I want you to think as fellow Gentiles for the most part, once we were a long way from God, without hope, without God, but we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. Peace with God, peace with each other. One new man with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Folks, we are fellow citizens with the saints of all time. We are members of the household of God. We are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God. And it's all because of one person, and that is the cornerstone. It's all because of Jesus. We are all built on and will forever be built on the glorious cornerstone, Jesus Christ. As we share the Lord's Supper together this morning, thank God that by his grace and mercy, you have been included in one of the most amazing organisms ever to exist in the history of the universe, and that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. At this time, we will share the Lord's Supper together.